Well, as I mentioned before, today marks the beginning of the Lenten season. And for some of you, that may not be a thing that you're accustomed to. Um, for others, uh, it's a familiar season. Yeah, like we do this every year. I see some familiar faces who are at this service most years. <laughs> and then um, for still others, Lent might carry negative connotations because of the way that you grew up or the system that you grew up in. And maybe you have thoughts of Ugh, drudgery and fasting and guilt and it's horrible. This better be good. Um, whatever your background, my job the way I understand it, is to point us to Jesus, not to Lent or to some practices. And when observed well, I think that the season of Lent is an invitation to grow in being more like Jesus. And that's my hope for us as a church. So just so you know where I'm coming from, I only appreciate traditions as far as the traditions help us become like Christ. So the, the best place to start in Lent is the goal, not to focus on like Lent and all the stuff that we give up or do. It's the goal. What is the goal of Lent? And as disciples of Jesus, we are or ought to be about becoming more like Jesus, more like our master. We see Jesus in the scriptures, or at least when I read the scriptures, I see Jesus and I'm drawn to his patience. As a father of three, I'm drawn to his patience. How do you do it, Jesus? Um, I, I'm drawn to his wisdom and his compassion and his love. He is amazing. Uh, you remember the first time you realized Jesus was amazing? You're like, I want to follow that guy. That, that, that's Jesus. He's still amazing. He's secure in himself, but he's not arrogant. He just knows how connected he is to the father, but he's not pretentious about it. Uh, he has power, and yet he uses his power unlike any other leader that I, you know, he uses his power only for the good of other people. It's amazing. And sometimes when you and I try and become like the Jesus we read about in Scripture, we can get discouraged. Because when I hold up his life to my life, it looks like I'm failing more often than not, right? It can be discouraging. And so at the beginning of this Lenten season, before we speak about character development or spiritual practices, I want to share good news. I want to share good news. Now, you know on Sundays that we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer one stanza at a time. And this morning I'm going to preach a homily version, a short version of the last stanza in the Lord's Prayer. Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Part of the good news of this passage is that Jesus invites us to pray it. He knows you will be tempted. He knows our weakness, and he doesn't condemn us. Rather, he invites us to be honest about it and to cry out to the Father. Now, one of the questions I have about this prayer that you may have asked yourself at some point is, why would Jesus tell us to pray to the Father that he not lead us into temptation. I mean, Scripture tells us that God doesn't tempt people. So is this a, a contradiction? Did Jesus mess up in his prayer? Why, would a good father lead us into temptation? Well, the answer lies behind our English word translation, and, and here the word used is parasmos. And parasmos in Greek has two distinct meanings. It can mean temptation, and it can mean testing or a test. 
And there's a huge difference between those two words. So which is it? How should we translate parasmas? Is it lead us not into being tested? Honestly, that doesn't make, that make much sense scripturally because God tests people in the Bible all the time. Noah is a great example. Uh, what happens if he doesn't build that boat? Basically, any moral choice that you and I have is a chance to prove or to improve our faith. It's all sort of a test in a way. Um, so it doesn't make sense that Jesus would teach us to pray, don't lead us into testing. So is it, don't lead us into temptation? That's what it is in my translation, but it doesn't make much sense either because like James 1, for example, tells us God never tests his, or tempts his people. He will never lead us into temptation. So how do we decide? If you've been around a while, you know my answer is context, 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 right? Context. Remember that the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer doesn't end with lead us not into temptation. It, it ends with, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one, not some ethereal force out there. It's literally, in the Greek, the evil one. Matthew uses this term to describe the Satan, otherwise known as the adversary or the accuser. The evil one likes to turn tests and twist them into temptations. So parasmas, which could mean test or temptation, might be translated like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, do not allow our times of testing to be twisted into temptations. And I think, as I reflect on my life, that's often what it is. When I'm tested to make a moral choice, I am often at the same time tempted to make a really bad choice, usually in favor of my own comfort or security or safety. So in order to see how this works, let's look briefly at the familiar story of Adam and Eve. Father creates these first people. He's in loving relationship with them. The Father put them in this beautiful, plentiful garden where they have all that they need. They can eat from every plant in the garden except one. Sounds like a great deal. You've got all you need, relational needs met, uh, all your Maslow's hierarchy are all there. Their only test was whether or not they would trust the Father. Trust that he had their best interests in mind. And apparently for some time that worked out until, dun, 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 enter the evil one. And here's his tactics. And they still apply to most things in our lives today. First one, sow seeds of suspicion. Did God really say that you couldn't eat from, and he twists the truth, not just the one tree, but from all of these good trees. Did God really say that? Number two, focus on the negative. You can't eat from any tree. Number three, make false deductions. Well, God must be holding you back from having your eyes open to the truth. He must not care about you. Look how good that fruit looks. If he's a good God, he would let you have that fruit. Number four, force the Father's hand. You know, the Father doesn't seem to be doing anything about your circumstances. The Father seems so passive. Wait on the Lord. Pfft, that sounds like a cop-out. Maybe you should take charge of your life and force your way. And that leads to number five. Take things into your own hands, man. Be American <laughs> before America. <laughs> take things into your own hands. Take life by the horns or whatever your metaphor is. Take the fruit. He's holding you back. 
Now, the evil one never simply says, hey, I'm here to deceive you. He's always crafty and gets us to do his dirty work by, by all of these tactics, sowing seeds of suspension and twisting the truth and making us doubt the Father's love for us. And here's another piece of truth to remember. It's kind of shocking, kind of brash. The evil one doesn't really care about you. <laughs> he doesn't love you. He doesn't hate you. It's almost worse than that. He just doesn't care about you and me. What he cares about is harming the father. And how do you harm a father? You get to his kids. I really can't imagine a much worse scenario than if my kids stopped trusting me, and then they started trusting some other person who I knew had their worst interests in mind but had them completely fooled. That would be absolutely, that would be a horror movie in my own life. Every time the evil one turns a test into a temptation, every time we turn to whatever your crutch is, pornography, alcohol, drugs, workaholism, you keep checking your retirement fund because that's really where your security is, your politics, your escapism of any sort instead of trusting to God, it grieves the father because he's like, don't you trust me? I'm here for you. And what we're doing by praying this prayer is crying out for help. Father, we're weak. Father, we want to trust you, but we're weak. We want to believe you love us, but we are easily deceived. And once again, we're confronted with the gospel, with the good news in the Lord's prayer. Because when reflecting on the ministry of Jesus, the New Testament writers whether it's the gospel writers or Paul or the, he the Hebrews write, I mean, they almost unanimously see Jesus as a new Adam and Eve, as a new version of humanity. And where Adam and Eve and their descendants, that's you and me, where we repeatedly fail the test of faith, Jesus passes it. He passes the, his temptation in the desert, he passes in his refusal to wear an earthly crown when people are literally trying to make him king. Here, have power. We see that you're amazing. Would you lead us? But not in that earthly way. He says, no, I've got something better. The Father has promised something better than that. Um, he passes it, the test of faith that we fail in his obedience to go to the cross. And his reward is resurrection and glory, and vindication when he's seated on the throne of the right hand of the Father, and all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a signal to the enemy that, no, Jesus' way of, of downward mobility has won. And here's the good news. We are not called to put our faith in our faith in Jesus. We are not called to put our faith in our ability to pass the test. Rather, we are to put our faith in Jesus who shares his victory vicariously with us. So we are right in this moment to cry for help. We often fail the test. The evil one twists the tests before us and makes them into temptations. And we are right to cry out, Father, deliver us. And we enter this season of Lent together, not hiding in the shadows, ashamed of our failure, 
but with hundreds of thousands and millions of other sisters and brothers in Christ, we come boldly at the invitation of Jesus. We're not making this up. It's in the Bible. Uh, he's inviting us to come and confess our frailty and to receive life-giving forgiveness. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And that's a great transition now for us to be led into this it's called a litany of penance, and it's one of many liturgical pieces and one that we've drawn upon for the last few years. It's a call and response, so you'll see that there's a part for a leader and a part for people, and it's going to be a communal way of us confessing our failure at these tests and receiving God's forgiveness. Um, so I invited into that.